yourself. Maybe not in a courtroom, but perhaps someone said something about you that wasn't true. And you felt the need to tell folks, hey, that's not true. That's not me. That never happened. Paul is doing that. And, and what you're going to see in the passage this morning is Paul is defending their motives, their actions, their behavior among this church of the Thessalonians. But in so doing, he's defending the gospel because what's happening is the enemy of the gospel in the town was attacking Paul and Silas and Timothy and saying things about them that aren't true. And what was happening is, in fact, I preached through Colossians the first part of the summer. The major difference between the two cities, the two churches is, Colossae had an issue with people inside the church. Jewish converts who were telling the new believers, you've got to become a Jew first before you're a full-fledged Christian. Or the Gnostic, beginning of the Gnostic heresy that said, Jesus really isn't fully God. The heresy or the problem that Paul's dealing with at the church of the Thessalonians is different than that. It's really outside the church were false teachers and idol worshipers. It's, we're talking about Greece, Greek gods, idols. So his main opponents were unconverted Jews or pagan Gentiles, Greeks. And so Paul knows, and they know, if we can discredit the messenger, it brings the message into discrediting. And so Paul defends really their motives, their methods. And the first thing that we see Paul address is they have been entrusted with the gospel. So let me read just the first four verses. We're going to cover 12 verses this morning, but the first four, just to get us started with the first point. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God and amid much opposition. For exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. As you see the defense of Paul, what he's defending is the accusation. So this is what he's being accused of, and he's addressing it, and for the most part, the false teachers were doing and the idol worshippers were doing exactly what Paul's having to defend and saying, we're not doing that. He starts off by saying, you yourselves know. If this was a courtroom, Paul is calling the Thessalonian Christians to the stand and saying, you know our methods. You know our methodology. You know what we've been up to. In fact, six times in these 12 verses, he says something similar to, you know or you recall or you're our witness. Twice, he says... God is our witness. So not only do you know, but God knows our motives are pure. And so he says, you yourselves knows, know that our coming to you was not in vain. The word vain means empty. Paul says, we didn't come for our purpose. We didn't come to glorify ourselves. We didn't come so that we would prosper. We came for the cause of Christ. And you yourselves know it wasn't vain. Paul's going to describe Philippians in just a minute how they were beaten and suffered in Philippians. And let me tell you something. If you've been beaten for the cause of Christ, then when you share the gospel, it's not empty. You're not wasting words. You're not wasting time. You're not going places for no purpose. So Paul says our coming is not in vain. And he says we've already suffered and been mistreated. What's the difference in those two words? They had been beaten, but they'd also been put to public shame in Philippi. And so Paul says we've, we've suffered, literally physically abused. We've been mistreated, literally subject to public disgrace, in Philippi. I'm not going to take time to read the passage, but Acts chapter 16 
describes Paul in Philippi, two things happen, really part of the same thing that happened. Paul is going to meet with believers in Philippi. He knows there's a prayer meeting that takes place near the river. So as he's going there, this slave girl who's a fortune teller comes up and starts saying, screaming, these men are servants of the Most High God. They've come to tell you the way of salvation. Well, that's true, but it wasn't the woman saying that. It was actually the demon within her, and she did that for days until finally in Acts chapter 16, it says Paul got annoyed and cast the demon out of her. Here's the problem. Her masters made a lot of money off of her fortune-telling. Fortune-telling in two things. One, she's telling your fortune, but apparently she was making a fortune for these masters because it upset them so greatly. They dragged Paul and Silas before the town leaders, the magistrates, and say, these men are upsetting the town. What really was happening is these men are stealing our money. This slave girl who's now non-demon-possessed and doesn't have the demon to speak to tell people's fortunes, we're not making any money off of her. So they, they order, the magistrates order Paul and Silas to be beaten and put in jail. So they are. They're beaten. They're put in jail. And he says, secure them tightly. So they put them in stocks so their feet couldn't even move. About midnight, they're singing and praying. They're having a worship service at midnight. And keep in mind, where were they? They were in jail, for crying out loud. But Paul and Silas are worshiping God from a prison cell with their feet in stocks. All of a sudden at midnight is an earthquake, and all their chains of all the prisoners fall off. And so the jailer, knowing that they're free now and can leave, takes his sword out to kill himself because that's what's going to happen. If you're the jailer and the prisoners escape, they will kill you. So he thought, well, I'm going to shorten the process and not give them the satisfaction. And Paul cried out, don't kill yourself. We're all here. We're all accounted for. And the, the short part of the story is the jailer trusts Christ as his Lord and Savior, goes home, and him and his whole household are baptized. So Paul says, that's how we were treated in Philippi. They didn't stay there very long. Now they're about 200 miles away in the church of the Thessalonians. And he says, as you know, again, there's that word, as you know. So we've been mistreated. Our coming to you was not empty. It was not in vain. But as you know, we had boldness in God to speak the gospel of God to you. Boldness. That's a tough thought to think about after you've been treated that way in Philippi and the word is going up ahead of you to wherever you're going, that you're turning the world upside down and it's upsetting people. And yet Paul said, we had a boldness. We had a frankness. We had confidence in spirit to speak the gospel of God. When you hear the word gospel, here's what I want you to think. Good news. That's what the word means. Here's the problem. The church of the Thessalonians didn't have good news. They had idols. They had false gods that they were worshiping. They didn't have good news. They had dead religion. Paul was bringing life through the gospel to them. And Paul says, we had boldness to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Our exhortation, three things he's going to say about his exhortation. First of all, it's not from error. It's not from a fraud. It's not deviating from orthodoxy. It is the truth. It's not from error, and it's not impure. I'm not going to get into all the gory details, but the church at the Thessalonians, Thessalonica or Thessaloniki was a very dark town. It was a pivotal town. It was strategic because it was on a main Roman road. It was also a seaport. Estimated about 200,000 people lived there. Different from Colossae, the church where the Thessalonian believers are is in a town that had a lot of people, but it was very dark. They had things like temple prostitution. 
And so people were padding their own pockets based on drawing people into these cults and these false religions and worshiping and serving these idols. So it doesn't come from error. It doesn't come from impurity. And Paul was being accused of, you're just like the false teachers. You're just wanting personal gratification. Paul said, no, that's not why we've come. He's going to get more specific with that in a few minutes. Or by way of deceit. So our gospel has not come to trick you. The word literally means bait. Anybody fish here? I don't know what you use for bait, but you want to use something for bait that attracts a fish. I've seen them catch fish off the pier using drinking straws. Have you ever done that? I mean, they went through a drive-thru at whatever fast food restaurant. Give me four or five drinking straws, and they get here, cut them up into little pieces, put them on hooks, and they may have four hooks on one line, and catch fish. I never did that. We used to use worms. Guy fished with us was a guy named Tim, who's a pastor now up in Connecticut. And we took a guy from our youth group fishing with us one day, and we're catching fish because we're casting near the bank. We're casting under trees. He's just throwing his hook out into the middle of the lake. And he finally asked us, how come y'all are catching fish and I'm not catching fish? And I said, are you washing your worm off before you put it on the hook? He said, no, you don't have to do that. I said, you don't think a fish wants to eat a dirty worm, do you? So here he starts washing his worm off, still not catching any fish. Here's the thing about fishing. Apparently to a fish... Worms or bait looks really good. They're saying, I want that. The problem is they don't know there's a hook in it. And so the people in Thessalonica are being tricked to bite bait that has a hook in it that once you get hooked, you're going to have a messed up lip the rest of your life. Paul says, we didn't come that way. We didn't come with trickery, but we came with methods approved by God. In fact, we have been approved by God. Literally, we have passed God's test. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Isn't that an awesome thought? God has trusted them with the gospel. When Jesus, before he left, he said, you will be my witnesses. And now that applies to me and you. In fact, what I want you to get out of this passage this morning is, the last verse says that he is encouraging them to live a life worthy of the calling that God's placed on them. So when you hear Paul defend himself and say, these are my methods, they need to be our methods, your methods. That we don't trick people. We're not selling brushes door to door like I talked about last week. We are sharing the truth of the gospel with people. And we've been entrusted. God knew he could trust them. Can he trust you? Can he trust us with the same message? Because it's still good news. And Paul says, not as pleasing men. Paul said, listen, you are not who we're doing this for. We're doing it for God because he examines our heart. So they were entrusted with the gospel. Secondly, they used godly methods. Paul says we never came, not one time do we come with these three things. First of all, flattering speech. It literally means a fawner. It means somebody that will say something about you that ultimately they say it to get something out of you. You ever had anybody compliment you and you kind of step back from the compliment and thought, you don't even know me. It's kind of like being a dad and your child crawls up in your lap and says, you're the best dad on the planet. Go ahead and get your wallet out. They want something. So Paul says, we haven't come with flattery of speech. So we are not tricking you. We're not using flattery to draw you in. As you know, there's that word again. You know better than that. So not flattering speech, not pretext for greed. The false teachers became very wealthy. And dare I say, they're false teachers alive today. There's some people on the radio that teach the Word of God, and, and you ought to listen to them, or television. Some are doing it just to pad their pockets. They're becoming incredibly wealthy off the gospel. Isn't that incredible to think 
that somebody would use the message of Jesus Christ to get rich or personally gain from it. So Paul says, we haven't come with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. So you know it. In fact, the word he uses for know is not the normal word for know, but it's the word that means to see. You've seen with your own eyes. You're living testimony that we haven't come that way. And so not a pretext for greed, nor to seek the glory from men. When you hear the word glory and we glorify God, it means that we're shining a bright spotlight on God. As we worship God this morning, it was my prayer that our worship, even this message, would take the spotlight and put it on Jesus who is high and lifted up. And that's where the spotlight deserves to be. If you're using the gospel to point the spotlight at yourself, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're a worship leader and your worship leading is about you, you're the center of attention, your focus is on you, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're a preacher and you're more concerned that people remember your name, I used to do youth camps a lot, and I'd be there a whole week, and some kid would come up. You're, you were a great youth speaker. What was your name again? I thought, I've been here all week. You don't remember my name. And it finally dawned on me, it really doesn't matter if they remember my name. That wasn't why I was here. I didn't leave so I could sign their Bible at the end of the camp and have them remember me. My point was that they would remember Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if you go into eternity not knowing me, but it matters if you go to eternity never knowing Jesus. So Paul says, not a pretext for greed. We're not seeking the glory of men, either from you or others. Even though, and he takes a little side note, even though as apostles we could have asked for you to take care of us, but we did not assert our authority. Why? Because it was more important to us that you knew the truth of the gospel, even in the midst of a dark, wicked city, than for you to help us out. He says, even though we have a fond affection from you, he says, we have tenderly cared for you as a, as a mother does. He, he uses a mother illustration, and the next point he's going to use a father illustration. He says, we're not seeking glory from men, but just the opposite of that, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother, a nourisher. It's kind of the picture of a mom who just had babies in her lap, either feeding them or taking care of them. And he says, tenderly Caring, just like a nursing mom tenderly cares for her children. The word tenderly means to warm. And it's that child is either frightened or that child is cold and that mom just wraps her arms around them and pulls them up into her lap and comforts them. One of the things I've noticed about children, something could happen out in the yard where one of, typically would happen with our boys. If one of them got hurt, they would come in. If I'm the first one they see, they would ask, where's mom? Any dads ever have that happen? Where's mom? Because sometimes they needed me, wanted me, but if it was a bad thing that happened, maybe they had hurt themselves, Dad, you can't help. I need mom. And then it was amazing to me, as soon as they found mom, boom, they started crying. It's like they could hold the tears back long enough to find mom, but once they found mom, they thought, this will get her. <laughs> and I, she's not going to let me suffer anymore. I'm going to cry, and she is going to comfort me. And Paul uses that illustration of a nursing mom to say, that's how we took care of you. Instead of coming in demanding by our authority as apostles that you take care of us, we came to take care of you, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with you. So we have this fond affection. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but ourselves as well, even our own lives. Paul knew as he's writing these letters, his life was probably short-lived. In fact, as he gets to Timothy, he knows, he says to Timothy, 
First and Second Timothy. Second Timothy says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul knew it wasn't about building a mansion for himself on earth because his life wouldn't be here much longer. But Paul said, because of our affection for you, because we love you. Paul, I mean, go look at the missionary journeys of Paul, man. He went everywhere he could in the known world of that time to tell people the truth of the gospel. He wasn't using people. He was serving people. And can I tell you again, some folks in ministry are people users, not people servers. Last thing, they encouraged a worthy walk. Let me read verses 9 through 12. For you recall, there it is again, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that. Paul teaches this way. Paul gets to the point where it's finally so that. When he says, therefore, it's based on what he said before. Now it's so that. Here's why Paul's done what he's done. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there he says it again. For you recall, brethren, exercise your memory for our labor and hardship among you. Our labor, our toil, our hardship. It's been tough. We labored day and night. What, was, what did he mean by that? What was he doing? We know from other scripture that Paul was a tent maker by trade. So Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he doesn't demand that they support him. In fact, he didn't ask for anything from anyone because he didn't want to be a burden to them. So him and Silas and Timothy made tents all day and night to take care of their physical needs. We labored day and night so that we would not be a burden, so that we could proclaim the gospel, not a burden to anyone. And your witnesses, so is God. There it is again. Paul saying, listen, what you're hearing about us, you ought to know immediately it's not true because you know us. You've seen us. We've been with you for months. He's not with him now. He's probably in Corinth writing this letter back to the church of the Thessalonians. But he says, you know we aren't a burden. We proclaim the gospel of God. And three things about what they were doing. Here's, here's their methodology. How devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. How devoutly, literally, piously, or right. Just doing the right thing. When God's will, God's name, God's kingdom becomes the most important thing to you, that will determine the way you live your life. So Paul said we live devoutly. We live uprightly. It points to conduct. It points to humble lives that walk with integrity. Lives that even avoid the appearance of evil. And we walked blamelessly literally faultless, without fault in reputation with people. That's how we behave towards the, towards the believers. Just as you know, there it is again. Paul's saying, you already know this. I'm just reminding you because of what's coming to you from outside, this pointing a bad finger at us and putting us in a bad light. You know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. Three things that Paul says you know, exhorting, literally. This means to call near. Anybody remember the word, the, the hymn and the hymnal growing up that had the word paraclete in it? The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. It literally means to be called alongside of. And Paul says, we exhorted you. We called you close to us so that you could benefit from our example. We have exhorted you to do these things. We've called you alongside of us. The closer you are 
to the person you're trying to follow, the better. If you play follow the leader and you're a long ways away, it's real tough to follow. The closer you are, the better. And I saw this with my own kids. My son came up to me one day, and he had watched me. He had walked with me when I fertilized the lawn and cut the grass, and I had not kept track with how many steps I'd taken, but he said, you did five things. I thought, well, I wasn't keeping score, but he was. Why? Because he was watching. He was close enough to me to see exactly what I did, and he wanted to do it too. In fact, we used to punish Robbie by not letting him cut the grass if he didn't do good in school. And we didn't have a riding lawnmower. That was his favorite thing, was cutting the grass. Anybody else have a son or daughter like that? We had four, and he was the only one that wanted to do that. The rest of them, I had to twist their arm to get him to cut the grass. But we walked uprightly and blamelessly. Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging you. Encouraging. We're cheering you on to do what we've exhorted you to do. And finally, imploring each of you. Again, to be called as a witness, to testify. We are imploring you as a father would his own children. He used the mother illustration earlier in the passage. Now he's using a father illustration. Fathers are not just examples, but encouragers and instructors too. So just like a dad would tell his son or tell his daughter, watch me, here's how I do it, follow me, do what I do, so they ultimately can do it on their own, just like a father who are examples and instructors, so that. Here's, here's the point of the passage. So that you walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you. What does that mean? Paul uses the word walk a lot. And when I first heard that, I thought, what, what's the deep significance of that? You know, I, I normally put one foot in front of the other. On Mondays, I put the left foot first. On Tuesdays, it's the right foot first. No, I don't think about it. And that's what Paul's saying. Walk in a manner worthy. Paul's saying, listen, you're already living your life. Do it in such a way that is worthy of the God who has called you to him. So to walk worthy means to live appropriately, to live your life. The one who has called you. If you're a child of God, you've been called by God. It, it should impact your life. Live your life in such a way that you're worthy of that calling of God who calls you. And he's called you into his kingdom. Here's the cool thing. You're already in the kingdom even though you haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen the finished product. Jesus, when he left, said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And I'll return to receive you to myself. How long has he been working on that place? 2,000 years. It's got to be an incredible place because he's still working. But one day, the father's going to say to the son, the place is ready. Go claim your bride. And so Paul writes in a lot of, in fact, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians has a reference to the return of Christ. It gets more specific in chapters 3 and 4. But he's called you into his own glory, own kingdom and glory. There's that word again, doxa, glory. It means the spotlight is not shined on anything other than Jesus. So live a life that's worthy of that calling. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me.